ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهديه الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد So today when we come to the hadith of Ali radiyallahu anhu قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لا طاعة في معصية إنما الطاعة في المعروف Ali ibn Abi Talib radiyallahu anhu narrates that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, لَا طَاعَةَ فِي مَعْصِيَةِ إِنَّمَا الطَّاعَةُ فِي الْمَعْرُوفِ There is no obedience in sin. Indeed, obedience is in only that which is good. There is no obedience in sinning. Obedience is only in that which is good. Hadith which is muttafaqun alayhi in al-Bukhari and Muslim. This hadith then is telling us about obedience and how that obedience needs to be. That our obedience to the rulers, our obedience to our parents, the obedience of our wife to her husband, in all of those various forms or scenarios where obedience is required Islamically. This hadith is telling us, that the obedience in all of those various circumstances is only upon righteousness. Meaning if you are commanded to do something that is haram, something that is impermissible, something that is a sin, by the ruler, by your parents, by the husband to the wife, then it is not upon you to fulfill that obedience. Because you are now being commanded to do something that is impermissible or a sin. Hence it is mentioned, لَا طَاعَةَ لِمَخْلُوقِ فِي مَعْصِيَةِ اللَّهِ There is no such thing as obedience to anybody in creation if it means that is going to be disobedience to Allah. If your parents tell you to do something which is haram, then by you obeying them, you're going to be disobeying Allah. If the ruler tells you to do something haram, by obeying him, you're going to be disobeying Allah. The husband tells his wife to do something haram, by obeying him, she will be disobeying Allah. So the hadith tells us, لا طاعة في معصية. There is no obedience 
in sin. You are being commanded to do sin, haram, then it is not binding upon you to do that. There is no obedience upon you in those circumstances. The obedience that is binding upon you is when it is within the bounds of the sharia, within that which is halal and permissible. وَكُلٌّ مِنْهُمْ طَاعَتُهُ فِيمَا يُنَاسِبُ حَالَ وَكُلُّهَا بِالْمَعْرُوفِ Obedience to the rulers, obedience to the parents, obedience of the wife to her husband, all of those types of obedience have been mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So they are binding. Obedience to the rulers, it is binding upon us. Obedience to the parents, it is binding upon us. Obedience of the wife to the husband, it is binding upon her. Unless a circumstance arises where the one who is commanding in those situations commands the one who is inferior to him with something that is impermissible or haram. وَكُلُّهَا تُقَيَّدُ بِهَذَا الْقَيْدِ وَأَنَّ مَنْ أَمَرَ مِنْهُمْ بِمَعْصِيَةِ اللَّهِ بِفِعْلِ مُحَرَّمِ أَوْ تَرْكِ وَاجِبِ فَلَا طَاعَةَ لِمَخْلُوقٍ فِي مَعْصِيَةِ اللَّهِ فَإِذَا أَمَرَ أَحَدُهُمْ أَوْ أَحَدَهُمْ بِقَتْلٍ بِقَتْلِ مَعْصُومٍ أَوْ ضَرْبِهِ أَوْ أَخْذِ مَالِهِ أَوْ بِتَرْكِ حَجٍّ وَاجِبٍ أو عبادة واجبة أو بقطيعة من تجب صلته فلا طاعة لهم وتقدم طاعة الله على طاعة الخلق أو تقدم طاعة الله على طاعة الخلق. So in all of those circumstances, normally according to the Sharia, we are bound to obey the rulers, the parents, the husband. But that is only in the halal. If they command you to do something haram, or they command you to leave something which is an obligation upon you, they tell you abandon the prayer, for example. So they tell you to go and do something haram, or they tell you to leave and abandon something which is obligatory upon you, then... In that case, there is no obedience to anybody in creation if it means disobedience to Allah. If, for example, they told you to go and kill somebody innocent, or they told you to go and beat someone up, or they told you to go and take the money and the wealth of someone, or you are commanded to abandon the hajj even though all of the rules are present, you have the money, you have the ability, you have everything, you could go and do hajj, yet they tell you, your parents or somebody tells you don't go and do hajj, then you don't have to obey them in that, unless there is some reasoning behind it, if there is no reasoning behind it, then you do not obey them in that, you go and perform your obligatory hajj, or they tell you to cut They tell you to cut the ties of kinship. 
Then again, this is something which is haram, and therefore you do not obey them in that. There is an example where somebody once asked a Sheikh al-Fawzan, a woman asked a Sheikh al-Fawzan, Hafizahullah, about pictures, photographs. She said that my mother wants me to take pictures of my kids and send them to her. Because she lives in some different far place and she wants to see her grandkids. So she's asking me to take photos and send those photos to her. What should I do? So the sheikh told her, do not take the photographs. Photographs haram. Pictures haram. He said, do not do it. Even if she becomes upset. Because this is an example of where something haram is being requested of you. So you do not have to obey in that. So he told her, don't take photographs, don't take pictures. This is not permissible even if she becomes upset with you. Then you have to just explain. You cannot abandon obligatory aspects of your religion or perform things that are impermissible and haram because somebody in authority tells you to do so. You must explain this is impermissible in the religion. فَيُفْهَمُ مِنْ هَذَا الْحَدِيثِ أَنَّهُ إِذَا تَعَارَضَتْ طَاعَةُ هَؤُلَاءِ الْوَاجِبَةِ وَنَافِلَ مِنَ النَّوَافِلِ فَإِنَّ طَاعَتَهُمْ تُقَدَّمُ Now then, he mentions some points here. Imagine now there's a conflict between a supererogatory act of worship an optional act of worship and obedience to your parents, for example. Your parents want you to go and drop them off at the airport tonight, for example. The flight is early morning, so you need to set off at 4 a.m., for example. You normally, mashaAllah, get up and pray to Hajjat. So now in that scenario, that night, you're going to have to miss your tahajjud. To go and drop your parents off at the airport. Because they've requested and they've told you, they want you to go and drop them off. They need you to go and drop them off. But if you do that, you're going to miss the last third of the night in prayer like you, mashaAllah, normally do. So now in that scenario, are you allowed to say, but I can't. Because I need to do my worship. Praying in the last third of the night, is it something of a great worship or not? Absolutely. But in that scenario, you have two things. You have your parents commanding you basically, telling you that they want you to go and drop them off at the airport early in the morning for the early flight. You are bound by the sunnah to obey your parents. Have they asked anything haram of you? Not at all. Have they asked you to leave anything obligatory of the religion to go drop them off? Not at all. 
They are asking you to go early in the morning, which means you're going to have to leave an optional worship that you used to do, or that you regularly do. But now the conflict is either you stay and disobey, and do this optional tremendous worship as it is, or you leave this optional worship and you obey your parents, and miss your tahajjud, miss the last third of the night, but go drop them off. In that scenario, which one? In that scenario, absolutely you drop them off. Because all you're going to have to miss is something optional. It is a supererogatory act of worship. Whereas obedience to your parents is obligatory. You cannot give priority to something optional over something obligatory. Obeying your parents is obligatory. They request you and they tell you, we need you to drop us off, then you must. You're going to miss an optional worship, then so be it. Priority is to the obligation of the parents in that case. The shaykh says, لِأَنَّ تَرْكَ النَّفْءِ لَيْسَ بِمَعْصِيَةِ Leaving and missing your tahajjud that night, is it a sin? Not at all, it is an optional act of worship. So there is no issue in that. Similarly, another example. A woman wants to do some optional fasting. Nafal. We're not talking about obligatory, we're not talking about Ramadan. Optional fasting, Mondays, Thursdays, etc. She wants to do a particular optional fast. But the husband does not give her permission to fast on that day. For some reason, whatever that reason may be, it could simply be the desire for intimate relations. It could be simply like that. Whatever the reason may be, but he does not wish her to fast an optional fast on that given day. So now then can she say, but look, This is an act of worship, sunnah to fast on these days. I'm not going to obey my husband in this. I'm going to do my worship. Correct or false? False. Because obedience to the husband, obedience to the husband is required. Whereas fasting on that day is optional. Will you be a sinner for missing that day? No. Would you be a sinner for disobeying your husband, for example, if it was for intimate relations or other affairs? Yes. It could be something else. It could just be that the husband says, that tomorrow we have a large number of guests coming from out of the country. We need to clean the house up perfectly for this visit. So today don't fast. It's going to take a lot of energy. We'll all do it. But it's not going to help if you're fasting to clean the whole house. It's going to become difficult. We need to do everything pristine. So don't fast today. Could be a reason as simple as that. Regardless, if the husband says that and requests that, and it's a reason from amongst the reasons, fatigue will be a problem when you need to do such a big job that day. It's a reason. Then the wife should obey that and miss the optional fast on that day. And not say, but I want to do my worship 
If the husband does not want you to do that optional fast on that day, then you obey the husband. If the husband tells you one day in Ramadan, the obligatory fasts, do not fast on that day, for whatever reason of those reasons, from the reason of intimacy, or the reason of cleaning the house for tomorrow, then in that case the wife would say, no, then she does not obey him, because now he is asking her to abandon an obligation upon her from Allah, an obligation of the religion, now she cannot, now she cannot obey him, because obeying him will now mean disobedience of Allah, but missing an optional fast, is it disobedience to Allah, is it a sin? No! So the optional fast, she obeys him. But if it was an obligatory one, then no. That's why it is mentioned in the sunnah, if a woman wants to fast optional fasts, then she should seek permission from her husband. Tell him that I want to do some fasts on this day or that day, and gain the agreement of her husband on the particular days that she wishes to fast. Another example the Sheikh gives to make the point clearer is supererogatory Hajj. So now again, a very similar type of situation. Your parents tell you that for Eid al-Adha, they require you to be here for various things that they are planning for Eid al-Adha and for visitors and for other issues that are going on. They need you here for this Eid al-Adha. You tell them, but I was planning on going on Hajj, even though you've done your Hajj, your obligatory one already. You tell them, I wanted to go and do a supererogatory Hajj. I have the money, I have the funds. I was going to go and do another Hajj. But your parents say, we really need you. This Eid, X, Y, and Z, we need you here. Again, in that scenario, if it came to that, if it came to that, your parents are saying, we need you. Then in that case, you miss your optional Hajj, your additional Hajj, you've already done your obligatory one. You miss this Nafal Hajj and you obey your parents and you serve your parents. Even with the Hajj. Same with the husband and wife. If the wife says that I want to go on an optional Hajj this year, my father's going, he'll be the mahram for me, I want to go with them. And both of you have done Hajj already, you and your husband as a couple have done Hajj, the obligatory one already. But one year, the wife says to the husband, I want to go again this year, I got money myself, I can pay for it, my father's going, he'll be my mahram, etc. But the husband says, for X, Y, and Z reason, I require you to stay. In this next month, for X, Y, and Z, I require you here. And I, I, I need you to stay. So if push came to shove, and it came to that situation, then again the wife can leave, and should leave, and must leave the optional hajj, and obey her husband. Because by leaving the optional hajj, you're not committing any sin, you're not doing any wrong. But by disobeying the husband, he's saying, no, I need you here. And if you're going to go off with your father, you're going without my permission. That would be a sin upon her then. 
So this is the point being made in the narration here. When you are commanded to do something by those who Islamically are in authority over you, like the Muslim ruler, like your parents, like the husband, Islamically they have rights upon you. If they tell you and command you to do something that is in line with the Sharia, then you must obey. But if they tell you to do something which means disobedience to Allah, either by performing something haram or by leaving something that is obligatory upon you, then you do not obey. And those same examples could work again. Imagine now a woman had missed a week of Ramadan due to her period. And all year she'd never got the chance to make it up. Until there's a week left for next Ramadan. So now this final week becomes obligatory. She's got to fast it now. She doesn't do it in this last week. She's going to become a sinner. Because you're supposed to make up your days before that Ramadan starts. Unless with those other circumstances of pregnancy and breastfeeding etc. But let's just say it's a simple case of the period. No pregnancy, none of those issues. So now in the final week, she's got to fast those days. She misses a single one now. Then she's going to end up falling into the next Ramadan and still have days left to make up. Now the husband can't tell her no miss those days. Now all of a sudden they are obligatory. So when it's obligatory, there is no option. You obey Allah and the rulings of the religion. But when it's optional, even if it's worship that you're going to be leaving, but it's an optional worship, optional fasting or, or hajj, then you obey the ones who are in authority over you Islamically. وَقَوْلُهُ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ إِنَّمَا الطَّاعَةِ فِي الْمَعْرُوفِ The statement of the Prophet ﷺ that obedience is only in that which is good, in halal, in permissible. كَمَا أَنَّهُ يَتَنَاوَلُ مَا ذَكَرْنَا فَإِنَّهُ يَتَنَاوَلُ أَيْضًا تَعْلِيقُ ذَلِكَ بِالْقُدْرَةِ وَالْإِسْتِطَاعَةِ كَمَا تَعَلَّقَ الْوَاجِبَاتِ بِأَصْلِ الشَّرْعِ وَفِي الْحَدِيثِ عَلَيْكُمُ السَّمْعُ وَالطَّعَةِ فِي مَسْتَطَعَةٌ The other point the Shaykh makes is that your ability is a factor in this. Your parents now say to you, we want you, we're telling you that you need to drop us off at the airport by... 8 a.m. We need to be at the airport for 8 a.m. We're going to leave home at 6 a.m. Two hour journey. We're going to get to the airport 8 a.m. Then you've got to come back and drop off your younger brother to school. Which starts at 9 a.m. And the house is two hours from the airport. So how are you going to do it? Your parents tell you, we're commanding you, drop us off at the airport and we're leaving after Fajr at 6 a.m. Two hours to the airport. 
8 a.m. you drop us off, you come straight back and you drop off your younger brother at school, he needs a lift. By 9 a.m. he's got to be there. Get him a taxi. The point of this is, the Shaykh says, your obedience to those who have authority over you in the religion is linked to ability. In that case now, you drive back as fast as you can, you're never going to get him to school at 9 a.m., but you're not a sinner for that. You haven't disobeyed your parents. It was simply, completely out of your ability and control. So that is the point the Shaykh makes at the end, that you should not think you are a sinner if something genuinely was out of your control from that which you were commanded to do from those who are in authority over you. That is the narration there in Al-Bukhari and Muslim explaining that point of obedience to the rulers, to the parents, to the husband in that which is good and halal and no obedience to them if it is in disobedience to Allah and if you are genuinely incapable then you will not be a sinner upon that. The next narration Hadith of Abdullah ibn Amr وأبي هريرة رضي الله عنهما قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا حكم الحاكم فاجتهد وأصاب فله أجران وإذا حكم فاجتهد فأخطأ فله أجر واحد if a ruler, a judge, a scholar strives to come to a ruling or a conclusion upon something and he gets it right, then he will get two rewards. But if he strives and makes an error in his conclusion, then he will still get one reward. This is now talking about the people of Ijtihad. Those great scholars, those people who are in a position to make Ijtihad, to look into the rulings of the religion, to look into certain cases like a judge does, and come to a conclusion on the affair, come to a ruling on the affair. They genuinely strive, and they are at the level of the knowledge of having the ability to do so. And they come to a conclusion on the affair, if they get it right, they will have two rewards. And if they made a mistake, they will not be punished, they will still have one reward upon the genuine and sincere striving to come to the truth. So this hadith indicates to us the virtue of those people in that position and that those people, they have a great degree of reward, two rewards if they get it right, and even a single reward still, even when they make an error, because of their sincere and genuine striving to come to the truth, 
But that is only for those people of that level and ability. It is not for the commoners to come along and to give fatawa about issues of the religion and they have not studied and they do not know anything about the religion. A few months abroad here, a few months abroad there. And then they come back with lies and exaggerations. I am the student of such and such a sheikh. I am the student of such and such an allama. And they put it on their posters. Ustad, such and such, the student of a sheikh al-Fawzan. The student of a sheikh bin Baz. The student of a sheikh al-Athameen. So that they can raise these people to a level that they are not deserving of and they have not reached in reality. So this hadith does not apply to the juhal, doesn't apply to the ignorant, raising themselves and their status, desiring the status of mufti, desiring the status of mujtahid, desiring the status of those who give fatawa. Then they give their rulings and they speak and they answer every question that comes to them. As though they are from the ulama and the scholars, they used to say, if you answer every single question that ever comes to you, then indeed you must be a fool. Indeed you must be a fool. Answering every single question that comes to you, who do you think you are? You have that knowledge? Al-Imam Malik, when the man came to him from Iraq, Traveled all that distance. And that was 1300 years ago. That man came all of that distance from Iraq. Sent by his people. They told him these issues. Go to Al-Imam Malik in Medina. He's the one who will answer these and give us the fatawa on these issues. So the man traveled from Iraq. All the way to Medina in those days. With, as it says in some narrations, 40 issues, 40 questions from his people. When he got there to Al-Imam Malik, he presented those 40 questions to him. Al-Imam Malik, in some narrations it says he answered 36 of them. In Sumner, or rather he answered four of them and couldn't answer 36 of them. In some narrations he answered eight of them, couldn't answer 32 of them. Meaning a vast amount of them. A large amount of them. He said to the man, Allahu A'lam, la adri. I don't know the answer to this one, I don't know the answer to that one, to this one, to that one. He barely answered a handful out of the 40. So the man said to him, They sent me, my people from Iraq to come to you, Al-Imam Malik, particularly and specifically, because you are Al-Imam Malik. They sent me all this way to you to get the answers. And 36 out of 40 you're telling me you don't know? Only 4 you answered? You only know the answer to 4? You want me to go and tell them 36 you don't know? You Al-Imam Malik? Al-Imam Malik said to him, Absolutely. 
Go and tell your people Al-Imam Malik doesn't know the answers to these questions. This is the way of the scholar in reality. You don't speak unless you have knowledge. You do not speak unless you have ability. As for those who speak without knowledge, without ability, without even attending the gatherings of knowledge, and they want to call themselves students of knowledge, without attending the circles that are going on in their centers, in their masajid, in their areas, not attending, yet they want to be recognized as people of authority, going to the places and giving lectures, they want to be recognized as people of authority, yet they have not studied, not done anything. Here the hadith is talking about the one who has reached that level of ishtihad, that if he sincerely strives and gets it right, then two rewards. And if he makes a mistake after that sincere striving, then a reward nevertheless. Then after that, we move on to the next narration here, Hadith of Shaddad ibn Aws, radiyallahu anhu, anna Rasulallahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qal, inna allaha kataba al-ihsana ala kulli shayt, فَإِذَا قَتَلْتُمْ فَأَحْسِنُوا الْقِتْلَةِ وَإِذَا ذَبَحْتُمْ فَأَحْسِنُوا الذِّبْحَةِ وَلْيُحِدَّ أَحَدُكُمْ شَفْرَتَهِ وَلْيُرِحْ ذَبِيحَتَهِ In this narration mentioned in Sahih Muslim, hadith of Shaddad ibn Aws, that the Prophet ﷺ said, Indeed, Allah has prescribed precision and perfection upon everything. Allah has prescribed precision and perfection upon everything. So if you kill, then do it with perfection and precision. And when you slaughter, then do that slaughtering with perfection and precision. And sharpen your blade and give comfort and ease to the animal you slaughter. This hadith is telling us about the issue of ihsan, perfection and precision in the acts of worship that you do. Ihsan in your worship. Just like in the hadith of Jibreel, when Jibreel said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, أَخْبِرْنِي عَنِ الْإِحْسَانِ قَالْ أَنْ تَعْبُدَ اللَّهَ كَأَنَّكَ تَرَاهُ فَإِنْ لَمْ تَكُنْ تَرَاهُ فَإِنَّهُ يَرَاكُ Worship Allah as though you see Him and you cannot see Him. But indeed, know that He sees you in everything you do. And so if you recognize that Allah sees you in everything you do, then you will aim to perfect and make good and perfect 
your worship when you do it and when you perform it. So this hadith is encouraging us upon perfecting our worship in all of the acts of worship. An example is given at the end of the hadith that even when you slaughter, when you slaughter an animal, do it with ihsan, with ihsan, with perfection and precision. Sharpen your blade. Do not use a blunt knife that will cause difficulty and prolong the moment of death for the animal. Sharpen your knife, make that precise. Sharpen your knife and make it comfortable for the animal. So that you do that slaughtering with precision. You do it with the best of methods and the quickest of methods. So this ihsan, it is required in all of your acts of worship, required in all of your obediences to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there is a level of ihsan that all of us are bound by. That is the level of perfection in your worship that actually makes it correct. If you haven't got that level of perfection in your worship, it means you're doing your worship wrong. You need to have enough perfection in your worship that at least you're doing it right. It may not be at the highest levels of perfection in the sunnah, but at least you're not doing bid'ah, you're not doing anything wrong. The worship is being done in the proper manner generally. That amount of ihsan we all need by necessity. Above that then is for those who strive and they desire to achieve the higher levels of worship, the higher levels of obedience to Allah. Because as we know, the lowest level is Islam as a whole. A person is a Muslim. Then as you progress and increase then you reach the level of Iman, you are now a Mu'min. Then as you progress and go higher, you may reach the level of Ihsan, you are now a Muhsin. That is the highest level to achieve. So this hadith is an encouragement for us to make our worship precise and accurate, our prayer to be prayed in the precise and accurate method, to be prayed according to the sunnah in all of the acts, to be prayed with calmness and ease in our movements, prayed with that minimal level of ihsan at least. As for a person who flicks up and down through the movements, then you have not applied even the minimum level of ihsan in your prayer. And as the scholars say, in that case, your prayer would not even be acceptable. Null and void. The next narration we'll do today is the hadith of Jabir ibn Abdullah. Radiyallahu anhumah qal. Harrama Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yawma khaybar al-humur al-insiyya. ولحوم البغال وكل ذي ناب من السباع 
This hadith now is on the topic of foods. The permissible types of animals that you can eat and the ones that you're not allowed to eat. In the narration it mentions that the Al-Humur Al-Insiyah Domesticated donkeys. Domesticated donkeys, you do not slaughter them and eat them. Luhumul Bigal. Bigal is the mule. And the mule is. What is a mule? Is that cross between horse and a donkey? Cross between a horse and a donkey. That is also mentioned the impermissibility of eating its meat. And every animal that has the nab. Every animal that has a particular characteristic, it's not allowed to eat. Which characteristic? Spine? Predatory, the hadith mentions that meaning by mentioning animals that have the, the, the fangs or the, the incisors, the, the sharp teeth. You've seen the teeth of a lion. You've seen the teeth of a tiger. You've seen the teeth of these predatory animals. Predatory animals, it mentions the nab. The nab is those long incisors. Those long teeth that predatory animals have, the sharp teeth that they bite into their animals with, their prey with. Animals that have those predatory teeth, lions and all those types of animals, not permissible to eat. And كُلُّ ذِي مِخْلَبٍ مِنَ الطَّيْحِ And every bird that has... The talons, the large claws, again what you could say, the predatory birds. Those birds that catch small mice and they catch rabbits, they have the big talons. And they catch the animals with. Those types of birds are mentioned here as well as impermissible. The rule is what here? We discussed this before once I think. The rule when it comes to food is what? The basic rule is that every type of food is halal. The asal, the default when it comes to food is that it's halal. Somebody brings you some new sweet that's come out. It's pink at the top and blue in the middle and black at the bottom and it's got fuzz on it and this and that. Never seen this before in your life. You think, is it halal or haram, this new sweet that's come out? All the ingredients are your typical normal halal ingredients. This sweet is therefore, by default, halal. No problem. The default in food is that everything is halal. Unless there are specific evidences to make something haram. Unless there are specific evidences to make something haram, the default in foods is that everything is halal. 
فإن الله أحل لعباده ما أخرجته الأرض من حبوب وثمار ونبات متنوع الله سبحانه وتعالى has made halal for us all of the different types of fruits and vegetables that grow the different types of seeds and the fruits and the vegetation all of it that grows it's halal وأحل لهم حيوانات البحر كلها حيها وميتها and animals that live in the sea exclusively live in the sea then they are halal to eat even without slaughtering you do your net you put your net into the sea and it brings out some fish normally they're wriggling about but you notice one in the net it's already dead it was already dead under the water for whatever reason it came up in your net dead halal to eat or not Halal. You're not going to pick up those fish and slaughter them. Fish or any type of animal that lives in the sea, exclusively in the sea, it is a sea-dwelling animal, then it is permissible to eat even without slaughtering. They mention some of the scholars who have slight differences of opinion on the issue. The majority of the jumhur. It is established any sea-dwelling animal is permissible to eat. But some scholars, they have small differences of opinion. One of the differences of opinion some of the scholars have, I believe it was the Hanafiya, they mention you cannot eat sea-dwelling animals if they have a counterpart that lives on land. If they have an equivalent that lives on land. So for example, horses live on land. There is a fish because of its appearance that they call a seahorse. Some of the scholars said you can't have that. Because it has an equivalent upon land. That is not the strongest opinion, that is not. You can have a seahorse. It is a sea-dwelling creature. We said before, predatory animals with the big teeth. When you go in to the aquarium and you see the big shark, and it's got the big teeth, halal or not now, it's a predator. You fall into that tank, it's going to eat you. Halal or not? How come? It's a sweet sea-dwelling creature. Correct, it's halal. Even though the other one mentioned there about the predatory teeth, those types of fish have that. But it doesn't count here because the narrations elsewhere specify and clarify that all sea-living animals are halal. So you can have a shark, octopus, Can you eat an octopus? All the arms and everything, put it on your plate and spread the arms out. And eat the octopus. Is it allowed? Would you eat an octopus or not? Would you like to eat an octopus? Delicious? You ate it? Where? With pasta? With pasta? In Bradford? 
Octopus, halal. You can have octopus. It is a sea-dwelling creature. Unless the octopus kills you first, big one. The octopus permissible, all the sea-dwelling creatures. So now, what about the mermaid? Mermaid, you know mermaid? What do you call it? Huriyatul uh, Baha. You know this one? Or they call it Insanul Baha. Huriyatul Baha. The mermaid. Is it permissible to eat or not mermaids? Do they exist? Fabricated. What you see from the modern day society, they are not mermaids, they are made up. But there is a type of fish, there is a type of fish that does have resemblance to the appearance of a human. There are fish like that. The scholars, the fuqaha, they used to mention this Hurriyat al-Bahar, which is not like the mermaid you see, like a full woman and then fish. It's not like that. But it resembles. It resembles. Like this fish, when you see it, you could, you could see that, okay, it resembles the, the body of a human at the top, the way it looks like, the way the fins are, they look like arms and the face, and these things that come off its head, it looks like hair. It resembles the appearance of a human. There is fish like that. There are fish like that. Nowadays, they've turned that into the modern day idea of what a mermaid is, which is a full human and then a full fish at the bottom. Nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying that exists. But the fuqaha did say there are fish that look like a human. There is a certain type of fish that resembles the appearance of a human. So now, would it be permissible to eat that fish? Permissible. Those types of things, we'll do it next session. Frogs, elephants, this thing, about a million different things. All of those million different things, we'll do it next session. Because, Sheikh Al-Fawzan, Hafizahullah Ta'ala, actually did a thesis with all of the ones in there. Because you've just asked about frog now. If we start doing that, everybody's going to ask about one particular animal. So we'll do that next session. We'll go through all of the animals. Frog and snail and slug and this and that. Is it permissible to eat these things? Or is it not permissible? The full list. We'll go through the full list next time. For now, what we want to mention is the overall principle all food is halal by default. All seafood is halal by default. As for land living animals, then we are permitted to eat what is good from them. The behematul an'am, the cows, the sheep, the camels, permissible to eat that. Also other types of birds like chickens and whatever else it may be, permissible to eat that. All of the land animals are generally by default permissible. The excluded ones are the predatory animals with the incisors and the like the saber tooth type of 
teeth that they have, the predatory animals, you can't eat them. But otherwise, the animals are permissible to slaughter and eat. There is one thing the scholars do mention though, is that even though by default they are all permissible, bar or accept the predatory types, that animals which are what you may call disgusting to eat, what are disgusting to eat, then it's not permissible to eat. The fuqaha, they mention that type of thing. Animals that are from the khaba'ith. The, the exact ones will come all next week. But animals that are from the khaba'ith, things which are disgusting, it makes you want to vomit thinking about, I'm going to eat that. Animals that have that type of feeling or that type of perception surrounding them, the fuqaha used to say that it's not permissible to eat. They are not animals that are desirable or edible in that way. But we'll come to all of those details in more uh, specific uh, explanation next time, inshallah ta'ala. Today, that is where we're going to end uh, explaining that general narration about all of the animals being permissible except the domesticated donkeys, except the mules, except the predatory animals with the teeth, and except for the birds that have the talons that they catch their prey with. But we'll carry on from this narration next time. And we'll go into detail with a full list of different types of animals, different types of birds, crows, and various things. What is allowed to eat and what is not allowed to eat. Then we'll start from that, inshallah ta'ala, in two weeks' time. We'll conclude upon that for today.